Well, welcome to Crossroads if you're new. At this time in the service, I'd like to study the Bible with you to the end that we could uh, see the gospel of Jesus Christ even more clearly for ourselves. Um, because we're always impacted by the gospel of Jesus and how it changes and shapes us and tells us more about who we really are. But also, as we continue to look at the gospel, our understanding um, increases and our appreciation increases. And I always like to say, what you adore and admire, you emulate. You, you start to become that which you uh, have joy in and delight in. And so the more that we can uh, orient ourselves around this amazing message of the gospel together, and the more we enjoy that, the more likely we are to embody that as we come and go in this city to show people the gospel is with our lifestyles. So please turn in your Bible with me to Romans. I heard some of you getting excited about us starting to study Romans together. I am too. Romans is a very important book of the Bible. At least it has been uh, ever since it was written. This letter should come with like a, like a disclaimer on it that's like, be careful, this is a sharp object. Um, I mean, it, it just, just, I'm sure <laughs> you would know that there's been even like reformations that have started in this world because of this letter. Um, the North African theologian, Augustine, I think it was Romans that caused him to turn to become a Christian. The Catholic priest Martin Luther got his theological furniture rearranged because of the book of Romans. Um, and he was instrumental in the Reformation, right? Uh, there was an Anglican priest who, when he heard Martin Luther's words on Romans, his heart got strangely warm. His name was John Wesley. And he started his own thing. Uh, you've got Karl Barth. His commentary on Romans sparked a theological revolution. I mean, this has been such an ecumenical and prevalent book of the Bible. I am just excited to start looking at it and taking our time slowly through it for the next couple of months. We're going to study actually the last five books or chapters of Romans. And our hope is that in looking at those, that portion, which is sometimes referred to as the ethical portion of Romans, that we'll be able to see the coming and goings of how the first, uh, tw the first 11 chapters work. And so before we get into uh, the reading here, I'd like to just make a few general comments about uh, the author of this book. The author of this book, his given name was Saul. Saul what I like to call Rabbi Shaul. Saul uh, grew up in a household that achieved Roman citizenship. And for a Jewish family, that's no joke. He was then raised in a very devout way that led him to be a passionate uh, Jewish leader. He studied under some of the most prevalent teachers of their day. And this is notable because he was raised in a worldview where the non-Jew, or the word that the Bible uses, Gentile, was the epitome of fallen mankind. This group of people was abhorrent to the Jew because in every way they stood against the ways of God. Paul would have had a very natural disdain for this people group, and if he had his way, he could either uh, 
participate in some version of extermination. Or he could participate in a, a, a spiritual revolution that would cause uh, the Messiah to return in, in, in various ways. But either way, the Gentile is a stench to him. This is his worldview. Until one day he met Jesus. When, he met, when Saul met Jesus, he was called to be a voice of the light to the Gentile. And over time, it didn't happen overnight, but over time, he started to develop and, and to see Jesus' heart for bringing in people who were outside to bring him into the family of God. Decided to change his name at some point from Saul, this first king, named after the first king of Israel, to this Greek name, Paul. Started identifying with the pseudonym, if you will. And now we call him the Apostle Paul. And I think there's an argument to be made that we are here this day because of his relentless ministry to bringing in the outsider. Every single city that he went to, he ran into, um, a, 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 he ran into a big confrontation on this issue of bringing in Gentiles into the family of God. They tried to kill him for this reason. I don't know if you, if you remember this when we studied Acts. He was thrown off of a cliff because of this. And they threw stones on him to try and kill him. Remember that verse in uh, 1 Corinthians, I know a man who once uh, witnessed the seventh heavens. <laughs> I wonder if that was the day he got that rock uh, hit his head or something. You know, if it, <laughs> uh, it starts to make a little more sense when you read in Galatians things like, if you had the ability to, you would have given me your, your very eye, your very own eyes. What kind of physical problems did this cost him, this message? Um, even at some point, even as we look at Romans, he, he wasn't able to write this. What kind of life, what kind of meaning did he find behind this message that would have caused him to throw his life into this? Everywhere he went, he started winning people over to this and creating radical communities of hospitality. Because in this hospitality, they are able to show a welcome for people who the rest of the world wouldn't welcome. We call them churches, house churches, these little communities of radical hospitality because of Jesus, where they would meal, eat together, meet together, break bread, share communion in a diverse way. So Paul sets up these networks all over, the, everywhere he goes. And in every city, there's various challenges for this message um, to be met with, which brings me to Romans so, I'd like to, before I go any further, uh, read to you Romans chapter 16. So please stand with me if you will for the reading. Romans chapter 16 and verse 1. I commend to you our sister, Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Centria. I ask you to receive, to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people. Give her any help that she may need from you. For she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ, for they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friend, Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ, the first Christian in the province of Asia, 
Turkey. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Implietus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose loyalty and fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphenia and Tryphasa, who, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus. A lot of people think this is the son of Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross with Christ. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me also. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegion, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philagus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and, and Olympus, and all the, the Lord's people who are with them. And greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches of Christ send their greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them. Void them. Such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetite. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everybody has heard of your obedience. I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, Sassipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus. Google this guy this week. Erastus, the city director of the public works in Corinth, our, and our brother Quartus sends you their greeting. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The first task for me this morning was to pronounce all of those names. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, think about it. Paul knew these people, not just how to pronounce their names. Oh, this, is, this is a community. I know that uh, you might be like me, and as we study the book of Romans, uh, you might see a little bit of a, a disconnect here. At Crossroads, we have a hermeneutic, and what I mean by that is a way of interpre interpreting the Bible. We have a principle that we should always look to the context of each letter of the Bible to see kind of what was going on in their world and how that might inform our interpretation of this or any given book of the Bible. You know, we, we study Ephesus. We, we want to figure out what's going on in Ephesus. You know about that big 
temple, an idol to Domitian, and how does that work, and how does that figure into this, uh, into their context? We studied Corinth, and we're like, yeah, you know, let's look into Corinth and see what's going on there before we read Corinthians. And for some reason, I've noticed for about, you know, a year and a half now, Romans has kind of slipped through the cracks on that. I grew up and just thought this is just a static theological document that just is what it is. And there's no story behind it. And subsequently, I just start feeling like a little detached to it and not really emotional and feeling like I don't really follow the logic or the the train of thought here and kind of get lost in some of the details. And the funny thing is, it's not like we don't know anything about Rome. It's one of the most, I mean, biggest cities in the world. There's a story behind this. So I'd just like to take a minute, do a group chat, and just ask you, and I don't think there's a wrong answer here, but just to shout out anything that comes to mind, if you were just to imagine ancient Rome, or a fact that you know about Rome, uh, for the whole room to hear. Anything would be helpful. What do you know about Rome? Colosseum. What did you say, John? Conquerors, okay. Those are two big ones. Colosseum, the way that they were, were, were thirsty for violence and for, uh, to, to witness and to see people who, con- thank you for that, John, con- they were conquering, they would use them as toys and game their lives. As, and this would be for them just a way of, Pro, uh, uh, promoting their dominance in the world. What, what else do you guys know? Caesar and what? Humanistic, me-centered ideology. Something that they're trying to develop, an ideology that centers around them, their growth, over and against everybody else, uh, c- crushing other, other cultures and other people. What was that over here? I already forgot it. Caesars, not to mention the ringleader of the whole thing, the emperor who leads the empire. They're so into this authoritarian, authoritarian figure that they started to worship as God. Fastest growing religion in that time was Caesar worship. All roads lead to Rome. Think about the... the the opportunity of getting, of infiltrating into Rome and what the message that might come out of there would be. Crosses, this would be another version of their um, brutal control and the way that they would use fear to control people. Um, one other thing that I don't want to forget uh, about Rome that you should write down, and this will become more and more relevant as we go. About... Not great at math. Eight, eight years or so, nine years after Jesus um, was crucified, there was such a movement in Rome uh, among the Christians that they ended up getting expelled. All the Jews got expelled from Rome. And the reason why I say this, it's not the first time that Jews were expelled from Rome, but it is, according to Suetonius, the first time they were expelled because of riots and rabble that had to do with someone named Christus. You might have heard me mention this before. Nobody knows what the Christus is, but it's one letter different than the Latin word for Christ. 
So it'd be like in a hundred years from now, somebody looking back and thinking there was that, that crazy, selfless church led by someone named Rob Van Salkema. And, uh, you know, you have to choose. Who is it? I don't know. Is it, there was no Rob Van Salkema. But could it have been because there was such an uprising about someone named Christ that it had been developing and growing in Rome and they were still arguing, trying to figure this out to the extent that Claudius said, I've had enough, all Jews are expelled from Rome. You can see this in Acts chapter 18, I think it's verse one or verse two. This is when Paul is in Corinth. He meets people here in verse three, Aquila and Priscilla. And it says, because they had been expelled from Rome. This is an important historical fact here because I want to factor that in as we figure out what's going on in the church of Rome. This, this banishment lasted till about four years before the book of Romans was written. If Romans written, was written in 57, the, the, the Jews were able to come back around 53, 54. So um, how would that affect what's going on in this church? Well, just imagine. You're a part of that initial uprising. You're starting to, to, to plant these communities and you're into and you're developing this, uh, this base of Jesus-centered uh, worship and, and prayer and communion. And then you get kicked out for nine, 10, 11, 11 years. And that whole time while you're gone, things start to develop by people who are allowed to stay. People who like bacon and shrimp and people who dress differently and people who have different traditions. And then you come back and now you're on the outs with all the other Jews who don't believe in Jesus because of you. Uh, their life was uprooted. You're on the uh, kind of the, the disadvantaged side of a, the momentum of a whole community of people because you're still kind of trying to figure this out. I can see how this would cause a lot of awkward tension in this church. Who's in charge? What traditions do we do? What new ideas do we implement here? How does this work? We read, the, um, Brandon, Brandon read this earlier when he referenced the strong and the weak. Imagine what those terms could mean in this context. Paul wanted to speak into this. Um, and so Paul, the author of this letter, decided to send this letter with somebody. And I'd like to take a moment to, to, to reiterate this. A lot of us imagine the Apostle Paul when we close our eyes and think of the book of Romans. But Romans has a face. You can see that in verse one. I commend to you our sister, Phoebe. Phoebe was the letter carrier of the book of Romans. So this, and, and just to give you a little context on what letter carrying meant in their time, it was somebody... Practically speaking, okay, you can't just email each other back and forth if you have any questions. You're going to bring the letter carrier in to be kind of, in a, in a discipleship way, somebody who represents you, that can answer questions on your behalf. I mean, if you're dropping a bomb like Romans on a group, there's going to be some dialogue and interaction that needs to happen. Phoebe would have been a part of the writing process, a part of the uh, process of figuring out Paul's heart and, and anticipating questions and finding a way to read this that would be challenging and cause people to, to uh, evaluate kind of where they're at, as you see in chapter two, uh, about the judge and how people are judging each other. I mean, how would that affect 
uh, the audience as they're hearing this. Phoebe had a massive role in the movement uh, behind the letter of Romans. She taught it. She brought it to their attention and she read it in their context. I don't think a lot of us see Phoebe when we think of Romans. Paul wanted us to hear, wanted it to be heard through her, to seen through her, a Greek, well, a, a Gentile woman. She brought this into a context of households, okay? When, when she read this letter and performed it, if you, when she brought this to their context, it was in houses. I can see about five of those in this list of names. Um, so, and, and presumably there was more. What did, so just imagine, what was it like? Did she go to all the leaders at one in one spot? Did they find like a, a venue where they could fit all of these to, to people, whoever would want you to come together, like a, like a wedding courtyard or something where they had a big meal and they're gonna welcome Phoebe? Did she do all of it individually? What, how, did this, how did this play out for her? Well, I do know that their gatherings revolved around a meal. So they would gather, whether it be uh, whatever night it would be, or maybe on a Sunday, they would ma- gather together and they would have a meal. And at some point in the meal, they're breaking bread. They're looking each other in the eye. They're talking about the body and the blood of Christ. And in, in, in the context of this meal, what do you think Romans felt like to hear? I mean, what was on the menu? How did, how did they figure this out? Was this something that they were fighting through about what to eat to, and how to eat together? Did some of them just not eat? Did some of them think it was a sin to eat certain things? I mean, was Aquila and Priscilla, let's say they cooked that night, were they on the same page about how to host and be hospitable to a Gentile woman, Phoebe? Do they, do they think it's a sin to make bacon-wrapped dates, you know, or, or do they... What, what, what did that look like? Presumably, she interacted with some very awkward moments. That's my opinion. Um, and, and that there is a reason why she brings this message, a message about welcoming in the Gentiles, and not just a message of individual salvation, but a message about how individual salvation brings us all into a family. You gotta ask yourself, why did Paul, who has, I mean, he states in chapter 2, he has never been to Rome or to their church. He's never been to the, Rome, the Roman church. How does he get off just sending this letter to them and thinking it would matter? Why? Why was it so important to him to write this letter and send it to them and to make sure that they're hearing this? There's something about the way they're interacting with one another that is starting to uh, deflate or to change the message of the gospel for the negative. And he is passionate enough about this message that he wants to get this into their hands, into their hearts, and into their minds so that they can figure out how to be in unity with one another, how to live out the unity that they actually, that they have with one another. For Paul, he's going into Rome, he's going up against a pretty big ideology. As we just heard, the humanistic self-centered ideology, I could boil it down to one word. Status. Status in the Roman world meant everything. They were very concerned about their, how many followers they had on Instagram, about wearing the new Supreme drop, 
about having all kinds of people see their signs of wealth and their new Tesla and how they were able to uh, just brag in a sense about the name brands that they had. When in reality, it's not that different from our world. Trying sort of to add that in there, you know, don't take me the wrong way. The image that they would, would have had is not Tesla. The image that they would have had is one of military might. A lot of the men that you'll see walking around in the Roman world will be wearing military gear to show what they view as honor and glory through what they value, which is through their, uh, through uh, violence and through dominance. They had a, a thing called the path to glory, the path to honor. And it would require gaining wealth, gaining popularity, and gaining glory. And if the symbol of Rome is military or a sword, Paul is wanting to change that status for the church to say, that is not our symbol. If their symbol is a cross to dominate and to threaten you, our symbol is going to be a cross because we're not about the sword, we're about surrender. If they're, if they're uh, the way they look is just one group of people that all look the same, our group of people are going to be completely look, looking totally different. We are going to be a place that is not about status. Well, not about the same kind of status, but a new kind of status, a status of family. He does this all over the place in what I just read to you, and I can even see it in the first sentence. I commend to you our sister. What does it mean to you to see all the language, that the, Paul's favorite metaphor here in, in his writing for how we interact with one another is family, sibling, my brother, my sister. Have you, if you were to write a sentence about who you are in the family and, and how, would you use the terminology of a brother, a son, a daughter, a sister? Do you feel like that this is something that is real for you? Because if your starting block isn't adoption into this family, then the race that you're going to run, if you're trying to be a part of Christianity, is going to be full of dysfunctional motivation. This is one of the most fundamental building blocks of this faith, that you have been welcomed into a family, a diverse and radical family, that once you were far off, but now you have been made near. Once that you did leave and, and contributed to evil, but that has been broken over your life and you have been brought into a family. If the world, if Rome, if, all, if, this, if everything else tells you, in order for you to be a part of this family, you have to look this way. You have to have this. You have to be like this. You have to think this way. Or else you don't belong in this family. This is, a high, this is why it matters so much to Paul, because he is desperate to get the message out there that no matter what you have done, the thing that makes you feel like you're not lovable and that you're outside and everybody's got it but you, bring that into this family and you're welcome here at this table. Look at this list. There's Jew and Greek on this list. Uh, did you hear the word Urbanus and Stachys? Urbanus is one of the most common slave names in their time. 
And Stachys is a name that's been found on lists of royalty. They're in the same sentence. Imagine passing that bread from master to slave. Christ's body is broken for you. His blood is shed for you. And we're here together in a family. This, this is an amazing reality of Christianity. And it is something that changes the world in an enigmatic way. In a world that separates and divides and pushes down and elevates. The cross of Christ undoes that and says, I'm welcoming you into this family. Have you received that for yourself? You won't get very far in your study for Romans until you start to wrestle with my identity. And Paul wants to reiterate to you, you have been given a spirit of adoption that cries out and is confirmed with the Holy Spirit that that, cry is, that cries out, Abba. We see in this list functions of how this works out. But let me just say what Paul said. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Please don't do that this morning. <laughs> I get an amen from the doctors in the house. Uh, you know the difference between a holy kiss and a regular kiss if you have a mask on and then <laughs> it's a holy kiss. All right, never mind. That's uh, the kiss is an embrace of family. Um, it is something that a family member would do in their time. And so you get some homework this week. You get to evaluate and do some work to figure out what would that look like for you? Have you ever written down a list or, or thought what family means to you and how family works and how you would communicate to somebody a greeting that would, that would just scream, I see you as family. There are a lot of people in this world who don't feel like the church is a place where they can be greeted as family. There are a thousand opportunities in this, in this church for us to be creative in this regard and to welcome someone in a way that's genuine and in a way that says, I'm committed to you as family. It's not one thing. I mean, look at this list of people. There are people here that are just good at working hard. And in their work and service, they're able to, to show uh, that, they, that, they, that they welcome someone. Uh, there's people that are just good at being moms. Rufus and his mother, who's been a mother to me also. I mean, there's people here who, and we'll get into the specifics of this in, in future weeks more and more, but what is the way that you are, the gift that you have and the way that you are, how does that communicate to somebody? My, I'm loyal to you. I'm receiving you as a family member. I'm gonna challenge you to just find somebody this week and to figure out how to say that to them. To look them in the eye and say that I, I'm committed to you. I've gotten in a lot of trouble for this over the years of my life and I'm not being prescriptive here, okay? So let me just say that. Not everybody's awkward meter is broken like mine. <laughs> but I've been wrestling with this for a long time. I really think um, the church has an opportunity to communicate with open arms to people. And, and sometimes we do the exact opposite of that. Um, so, yeah, when I was, I mean, I remember years ago, I could go on and on. I'll keep track of the time here. I'll go on. 
when, when Facebook first came out, a friend of mine named Chip helped me to get signed up on that. And I was just wrestling with this for the first time in my life. And I was thinking, I saw this verse that Jesus was approached and they said, your mother and your brother is outside. And he said to them, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Those who do the will of my father. I'm not going to show favorites here. I want you to know we're all part of the same family. I started to see uh, references to family and sibling in the Sermon on the Mount and in all of Paul's epistles. My son, Timothy, Titus, my son. And I'm just like, how do I do this? I believe this. I want this, you know. And so I go on the Facebook thing and, and there's this thing that was like, um, who's your family? You know, you get to click. And I am a man of conviction. I don't know. I, I don't go on there very often, but I bet you to this day there's a bunch of random people on my siblings list on there. I don't even know if they know. And uh, I don't know how that works, but I, I mean, I'm not, I just don't think that we will do things when it matters if we don't do small things. I don't think that if we don't make small decisions to communicate what we believe about our status as siblings in the household of God, we want to make the small actions that will even be coming close when it actually matters. About three or four years ago, I made the commitment to speaking this out of my mouth as fluently and naturally as possible to say, my brother and my sister to people. Not in a weird way that's about me, but in a way that I just want to say, like, what if we did start to change the way we look at one another? What if we did become a whole group of people who actually just were able to just fluently communicate to one another, you belong with me. You belong here. I got you. There is nothing more powerful than a family that's on mission together. I believe that. I've seen it in my own, you know, blood relatives. I have, a sister, I have a sister. This time last year, she's a hospital worker, and she, she was living in Oregon and lost her job, and so canceled her apartment and drove straight to my house and lived with me for the rest of the year. And there was no question. <laughs> We're in a pandemic. We're in a, you are here. I've got you. Be in my room. Eat my food. Be a part of this family. Me and Chelsea during that time had a, experienced a great loss of a child, and my sister had my back. We don't agree on almost anything. <laughs> but the unity of a family is a lot like the unity that Christ provides all of us. And I hear a lot of talk these days about we need to be unified, we need to have unity. Unity is something that you live into. It's something that you accept. It's not something that you produce when everybody understands the same things or believes the same way. It's something that you commit to. I have accepted the status of family, and I'm going to communicate that in any way that I can. That's a powerful, powerful message. It's that important to Paul that this church in Rome doesn't lose that and start to separate and say, you don't belong with me anymore. Greet one another with a holy kiss and embrace one another in a way that says, you're my family. The uh, 
second paragraph here that I'd just like to end with uh, a few thoughts on, starting in verse 17 to 20. I don't know if you, uh, it's kind of tricky in a couple different ways, but we really have to figure this out because he ends this thought by saying, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet soon. So whatever he's thinking about has some consistency with Satan. <laughs> At least that's how his mind's going, that's the direction his mind is going in. This is, this is a satanic pattern. There's people who are causing divisions among you, teaching you to, 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 to think in ways that are different than what I've taught you or what you have learned, okay? So you could say the book of Romans or you could say that the gospel as it is a gospel that brings in um, all kinds of people into the same family. They do this because they're really good at talking, flattery, but they're putting obstacles in your way. And I know that you guys are pure and your obedience is renowned. And I want you to just avoid them. The satanic pattern here of having a really great argument, being good at talking, putting obstacles in the way, um, makes a lot of sense to me. There's only three stories of Satan in the Bible, uh, in the narrative. Uh, the Satan comes up in the Garden of Eden and the book of Job and really Matthew chapter four. You guys probably know these stories. Yeah, he says... He has a good, a great argument. He says to the woman, did God really say that? You'd die if you ate that? You're not gonna die. You're just gonna be like him. He knows that. Puts an obstacle in between God's voice, God's truth, and Eve. Remember Job? God says, look, this guy, he's amazing. Job chapter one, and Satan says, eh, not really sure that you're, you know, factoring in, he, you know, all of the things that could be about, so I'm not, I don't know. You, you're gonna have to prove it to me. Um, right after the baptism of Christ in Matthew 3, when, Ma when the, the heavens burst forth with delight, this is my son. Matthew chapter four. He went into the desert and the Satan came to him and said, if you really are the son, I don't know if you, you know, maybe if you would do this to prove it. This is the pattern of Satan, and, and, and I can see why he would put this into this paragraph here um, as an end to that. That pattern is doomed. Let it be known. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But what really stings for me is that this pattern, I think, is kind of prevalent in our world right now, and sometimes even in the church. This is the way we articulate things. Sometimes we put up pictures on the internet and post, you know, people and just say, they're out. I'm gonna, I got a really good argument as to why they're not in because of what they think and what they did. And until they, boom, obstacle, until they climb over this obstacle, I will not approve of them being in. You don't belong here. Sometimes we do it with like even other versions of Christianity, right? I mean, this is kind of like that Job situation. You know, we got a guy that he comes in and says, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but different uh, background, different race, different orthodox group or whatever. And we're just like, ah, I don't know. We become drug sniffing dogs to sort of see if they got any heresy on them. And we're like, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? I'm not sure, you know? I got a really good argument that says you don't belong here. And I'm gonna put this obstacle in the way. And until you climb over that, until you tell me that, that I'm right, you don't belong here. 
Or that last one I really like, just prove it. Standing kind of in the same way that Satan stands and looking at somebody that God has said, I love you. This is my child. And then to stand here and say, I don't know, prove it. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. If any of this resonates with some inclinations in your life, I just want to challenge you. Avoid it. (laughs) What does he say? Avoid that person. Don't listen to that voice. Don't listen to that anymore. That is a pattern that is doomed to destruction. And the pattern that you have been taught is a lot closer to you just being an expert and doing what is good and being innocent as to what is evil. I don't need you to be an expert into the evil. I don't need you to go into a thousand YouTube videos to, make, be, to become an expert in all the evil in this world. I want you to be an expert in doing what is good and innocent to what is evil, and that's enough. And continue to just greet one another and welcome each other into this family. Break the bread. Pass it to one another and say, you belong here because of Christ, because of what he's done for us. And that family bond is going to change the world. It has changed the world and it it continually will. I like the word of Rosaria Butterfield where she said, the gospel comes with a house key. Does your gospel come with a house key? People aren't listening to arguments these days. They're they're listening to a lifestyle that they can't figure out, but it's beckoning them like like a light in the darkness, like a city on a hill. A lifestyle that says, I have hope, I have peace, I have rest, and I've got some to spare. As we study the book of Romans, we're going to carry this heart with us the whole way. And I want you to consider asking yourself, have I received my sonship, my daughtership, my siblinghood in this family? How is a way that I can communicate to the world that that's a reality for me and can be for you as well? And uh, as we go through that, um, I just am so excited to see what the Lord's going to do in and through you. Let's just pray about this together before we go. Father in heaven, if there's any of us who just right now need a fresh word about how much you, how excited you are to welcome us into your family. Uh, then speak that to them. Holy Spirit, I know that you confirm that. Testify. Let them say the word Abba. Let, them, let that loose, maybe for the first time in their life. I am a full-fledged member of the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people of God. I belong in this family. If there's anybody here who just feels excited to communicate that, give us inspiration and imagination to start to communicate to maybe just one person this week our commitment to them and loyalty of a brother or sister. And if there's any of us here who have been following the pattern of the Satan, help us to just repent and to turn away from that and to see how not helpful that is to put obstacles in people's way, but to actually be uh, arms wide open, ready to embrace anybody who wants to come into this family.
We look to you, Jesus, the one who made this all possible, the one who was caught eating with sinners and tax collectors, but the one who died for even more than that. Form us into the shape of the cross as, as we become a community that extends that forgiveness and extends that 70 times seven to those who are around us and extends um, connection to this family. In your name, amen.